The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. First from Psalm 86 before we pray. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Let's pray. God Almighty, would you gladden the soul of your servants here? We lift up our souls to you, Lord. We face you, we cry out to you. And we ask you, give joy to us in our inner persons. Gladden our souls. Lord, I want that to happen for myself and for my brothers and sisters here. Meet us now. So we open up the scriptures and we review the book of Ephesians. Would you meet us and would you work such that what we are reminded of and what we see again gives joy to us. Not a joy that's separated from you. Not a joy that's found in other things. But in a joy that comes from you as we meet you in Ephesians again. God, do that, I pray. Commission your spirit to cause our hearts to love the Son to the glory of the Father. Be here in our midst, I pray, Lord. Amen. We began our journey through the book of Ephesians back in September. And now here, seven months later, we're drawing it to a, conclu- to a conclusion. I have loved this book. I think I love this book now more than when I started. It has been, these six chapters, this book has been just filled with heart-enlivening truth that has been so helpful to me as I have daily struggled to love Christ above all things and to walk in a worthy manner. It's been helpful to me and my hope here this morning as we look back over this book is that you too may be reminded of its contents and of certain things in it. Certain things might flash back to your mind and might surface again. We kind of skim over the top. I'm going to try to bring out some of the central themes and applications and, and of course I'm going to have to skip over a number of the arguments and the details that underlie them. So I want to make a little disclaimer here, particularly for those of you who are new here or newer here. I don't usually preach like this. I don't usually touch so lightly on the text, but I'm trying to do a summary of six chapters. So I'm going to have to, I apologize for this, but I'm going to have to talk about things quickly and I'm going to have to reference things that we may have talked about in detail before you arrived. I realize that. I'm, I'm sorry for it. I don't know any other way around it other than to ask for your understanding. My hope though, my prayer for this morning though, still is that this sermon, that looking at this book still would spur us on, each of us, towards greater faith in God and greater love towards all the saints here. It's my hope still for this morning. So let me begin by reading chapter 6, verses 21 through the end. Then I'll make a few comments about those verses, and then I'll move rather quickly into the summary of the book. So this is chapter 6, 21 to the end. 
so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This ending is a very typical ending to a first century letter. Some words of closing from the writer, mentioning how the bearer of the letter, the, the, the personal postman, is going to inform them, tell them some other things about how the writer is doing, and then some wishing of some blessing, some good things on the recipients of the letter. It's very common. So we should be careful about reading too much into these verses. However, these words that Paul uses, though they are common, they are for him and for all Christians, they are some loaded words also. What I mean is, what happens with the phrase, Merry Christmas for us? Non-Christians everywhere around December time say Merry Christmas all the time. We say it as well, it's a common greeting. But, though it's common, for us, that term, Merry Christmas, is a loaded term because we should also be thinking, there is much to be merry about. Here as we're talking about the Incarnation, it really is a Merry Christmas. So you see, it, it's a common phrase that's also loaded for us. And here now, when Paul talks about peace and love and faith and grace, a number of those words were commonly used to close off letters. So they're common, but they're also loaded. God has shown grace to his children in love, making peace. And his work in us produces persistent faith and persistent love for him. May all of that be upon you still more, Paul prays. We hear him say these things, and it should remind us of a lot of stuff that we've already seen in this letter. Coming here at the end of a letter such as this, it should remind us of some things. So let's look back and catch some of those. The understanding of the gospel in Ephesians challenges and redefines the superficial understanding of the gospel prevalent in our day. Do you remember that quote? I first shared that quote with you way back when, in our first time in Ephesians. They are important words. Listen to them again. The understanding of the gospel in Ephesians challenges and redefines the superficial understanding of the gospel prevalent in our day. Now, The beginning assumption in that quote is that for the modern church, particularly the modern Western church, in all shapes and sizes, the church in Europe and in North America, the assumption is that this church talks about and uses the phrase, the gospel. But what it's referencing and what it explains in that term is actually anemic. It's very weak and superficial compared to what the Bible means by the term, the gospel. That's the underlying assumption. And it is true. In this very helpful little book, the cross-centered life. C.J. Mahaney tells a story. On Monday, Alice bought a parrot. It didn't talk. 
So the next day she returned to the pet store. Needs a ladder, she was told. So she bought a ladder. But another day passed and the parrot still didn't say a word. How about a swing? The clerk suggested. So she bought a swing. The next day, a mirror. The next day, a little plastic tree. Day after that, a shiny parrot toy. Then comes Sunday morning. Alice is standing outside of the pet store when it opens. Parrot cage in hand, tears filling her eyes. The parrot's dead. Did he ever say a word? The pet store owner asks. And Alice, through her tears, through her sobbing, says, Yes, right before he died, he said, Don't they sell any food at that pet store? <laughs> this is a simple story with an obvious point. A point that many of us in the modern Western church with our superficial understanding of the gospel need to hear including many of us right now who are thinking of other Western churches with their understanding of the gospel and think they need to hear it. We need to hear it too. To be honest, I myself frequently need to hear this. Alice's parrot had everything that any parrot could ever hope for except that which he really needed, food. No amount of fun, shiny gadgets could make up for that. And the gospel, as it relates to us, is actually about supplying us with real food. Christ. And continually supplying to us that food throughout life that we may live. Fully live. Sorrowing, perhaps, but ever rejoicing because our hearts have come home to Him for whom they were made. As the old saint once prayed, Oh God, our hearts are made for Thee, and they are restless till they find their home in Thee. This is the Gospel's aim. To the glory of God, to give us Christ. Food. He is manna to us in the desert of life. He is water from the rock. He is the bread of life. He is food for us, sustenance for our souls. This is the gospel's aim, to reconnect us to Him. And then through Him, dwelling down deep inside of us, to empower us to live. To really live. To elevate Him in our hearts to His rightful place of supremacy, such that He supplants all other shiny gadgets that our fallen hearts are prone to chase after. That we often turn into the end goal of the gospel. Erroneously. Let me say that again. The gospel's main aim as it concerns us, now the flip side of the coin is that from God's perspective, He looks at the gospel as the means by which He glorifies Himself in the world. But it's, it's the same coin. From the other side, looking at it from our perspective, how it relates to us, the gospel is about reconnecting us to God, our exceeding joy, as the psalmist puts it. It's about gladdening our souls with Him. This is the gospel in Ephesians. It is the gospel of the Bible. May it be the gospel that dwells in your heart and courses through your veins and causes you to praise Him with your lips and with your life. The gospel that feeds you with, that gives you Jesus. Thank God for that gospel. 
because here's my main point for this morning thank God for the gospel because in Christ God has changed and will change everything for us in Christ God has changed and will change everything for us we begin to unpack that keeping in mind that basically I'm giving an overview of the book here so I'm gonna have to skip along and miss some things but I'm gonna address what I see to be three overarching main themes in this book there are others of course there are things that I'm gonna miss I'm gonna talk about three overarching main points about being in Christ the effect of the gospel so here we go the first overarching summary point that we need to touch on comes from chapters one and two now I realize that these chapters cause a lot of discussion back in our church back in September and October here in our church not everyone is comfortable with what I point out in these verses I realize that but of course I can't skip a third of the book in summarizing the book nor would I want to what's taught here in these chapters is critical for us understanding who God really is and how God deals with God's creatures in God's world it is central to understanding him if God is doing such marvelous work as feeding us with Christ which he is how do we get in on that how do we get into that sphere of being in Christ how does that happen that's, that's where he's doing this kind work of nourishing us how do we get in there here's the first overarching point we are placed in Christ by sovereign grace we are placed in Christ by sovereign grace grace undeserved unearned unmerited favor grace grace that comes from God and is sovereign that is it is dispensed according to the will of God alone as he sees fit because he is in sole authority over his world he's sovereign and when it is dispensed it does something it has an effect second Corinthians 4 4 describes unbelievers in the world right now as those who have been blinded by Satan Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and God then distributes grace to tear off those mind blinders if you will to enable us to see he has that end in mind he has an intention and he dispenses grace and it causes something to happen it has an effect it accomplishes his end we're placed in Christ by this sovereign grace and that is good news it's good news because otherwise we were in a hopeless predicament we all like sheep had gone astray in chapters 2 verses 1 to 3 make this abundantly clear it recounts our universal attitude our universal behavior and our universal destiny before God worked his grace on us who now believe we all were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked That's what the verse says we were physically alive of course we were walking we were living 
We were living right in line with the desires and agenda of the fallen world, following after its passions and lusts and desires, following in line even with Satan himself, the text says. But we weren't being forced into it. It's actually what we ourselves fully wanted. It's exactly, verse 3 says, it's exactly in line with our desires, the desire of our mind and of our body. This is where we were. We weren't being forced into it. That's clear. That's who we were. And our heart disposition was clear. Our actions were clear. And our destiny was clear. Wrath. Awful devastating, final, tragic wrath. The Lord is our creator. And he is also our judge. And he has made his verdict clear. One must sit here for a moment to grasp the severity of this. If you haven't yet come to Christ, this is where you still are. You haven't surrendered your life entirely to Jesus. This is where you still are. Left to our own ways, to our own choices, we all still would be there. We'd made our desires abundantly clear. What we wanted was clear, not Him. And our verdict, the verdict on us was clear as well. We were doomed. So what changed it? Verse 4, But God. But God. Perhaps the greatest transition in the scripture. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the love that he had for you and me, God intervened and he did something. God brought us dead sinners back to life along with this crucified and resurrected Messiah. Verses 4 and 5 there. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, by grace you have been saved. Or we could use the language of chapter 5, verses 2 and 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, who atoned for her sin and bring her back to life. Vast love from God, vast grace poured out on his people. It is marvelous news. It is awesome news. It is life-changing news. It is good news. It is gospel. The word means... It's amazing. We contributed nothing to earn or deserve or even request this. Many in this valley see grace as some combination that we, we join into our works. That is not true. That is not grace according to the Bible. Salvation is not 75% the grace of God and 25% what we chip in. It's not 85% of God, 95% of God, 99% of God. It is 100% of God. We are saved by grace alone, not by works, so that no man may boast. Let's be clear about that. It is of God by sovereign, heart-changing, eye-opening grace. But does that mean that we're just robots or something? That what we do doesn't matter? I hear people say that. It is not true. It is not true. We are not robots. And what we do is very relevant. Why else would Paul ask in chapter 6 that we pray for him, for boldness and clarity as he expresses the gospel? Prayer matters. Boldness and clarity matter. 
When God removes the blinders, we've got to have something there to see, some gospel expressed to us in a way that we can understand it. Boldness and clarity and prayer all matter. Our actions matter. Now how these things work together, somewhat complicated. We can discuss that. We should discuss that. I relish discussing that. Come and talk to me. Please. But right now, though, I have to skip over that. I'm trying to do a summary here. Main point, we are placed in Christ by sovereign grace. And what is our response supposed to be to that? Chapter 1, verse 6. To, to the end of, towards the goal of, to the praise of His glorious grace. Or twice later, in the in same chapter, verse 14 and verse 12, to the praise of His glory. We're supposed to see this God acting on our behalf in this way. And our response to Him is to, be, is to be filled with praise. To praise Him for being such a glorious God who would act like that towards people like us who don't deserve it. That's our response. We praise Him for making we who were against Him for Him. For bringing we who were spiritually dead back to life. For not waiting for us to make the first move because that never would have happened. But instead, for him himself, for he himself making the first move. This gospel reserves all the glory for God. That no one, that none of us may boast. And it reserves for him then the right to show us glory upon glory into the coming ages. Fall before him in humble, awestruck worship. That's the response that's supposed to draw out from us. See Him and see what He's done. Be thankful for sovereign, saving, loving grace that has placed you in Christ. Let your heart be warmed, fired even, with hot affection for Him. He has done this for you, though you did not deserve it. Glory! If you're a believer here this morning, it should cause thanksgiving to well up in you and love for Him to well up in you. And if you're not a believer here this morning, I encourage you, you must consider this. There is no hope for salvation apart from this type of grace. Received by faith alone, not by any combination of works. There is no hope of working yourself into this. Cry out to God, this is the only way you can be saved. Cry out to God, I have no hope in myself. I have no means by myself to come to you. Save me, Lord, I am yours. That's the only way. That kind of heart surrender and trust is the only way. Heed that this morning. And whether you're a believer or not a believer, I caution you. Take care to watch your heart and not be put off by that which does not put you in charge. It is common in the human condition to want to be in the driver's seat, or at least to be in the front seat. And we naturally resist any thought that God is in charge. It's natural in us. Guard yourself against that. We're placed in Christ by sovereign grace. Believe it. Accept it by faith. It's the first overarching point. 
The second extends out from it. Really, it's a broad ramification of the first point. We're in Christ. Here's the second point. In Christ, we have peace. In Christ, we have peace. Broad, varied peace. Peace that has been made where war and opposition once existed. Peace that has come to us. Peace that is being continually actualized, that means made real here. And peace that will one day be entirely real. That will cover everything, everywhere. In Christ, we have varied, wide peace. And peace is needed. You see, a great rupture has occurred. And the world is filled with brokenness and pain and discord and sorrow. Back in the Garden of Eden, one man and one woman considered their standing before God. They weighed the temptations from Satan. And as they stood there and thought about this, as one song I know puts it, all of their unborn children died when both of them bowed down to Satan's hand. And since that moment, on down through the ages, clear through to today, sin and death has reigned in the world and peace is not the norm it's not not anywhere all of your problems come from this fall all of your problems in life come from sin somehow or another physical health problems difficulty with weather and natural disasters it's because the creation order the cosmos has been subjected to sin and it does not work like it was designed to a great chasm has opened up between the creation order and between people. The creation order, including the spirit realm with the fallen angels, is at odds against us now. And we suffer because of it. And then on top of that, nations war against nations. People groups hate other peoples. Individuals argue with and abuse and even murder other individuals. Married couples fight and divorce. Human relationships are broken in any number of different ways. Some large, some small, many painful. It's what life is like now. A great chasm has also opened up between all peoples. But on top of that, far above it all, really causing all of it, a great chasm has opened up between God and people. This is the greatest one of all. We've all gone astray and so are separated from Him for whom we were made. And personal misery here in life and isolation and then eternal judgment are the results of that. Sin and death reign in the world. Every time you hear a siren go by, you should be reminded of this. Every time you see a crime report on the news, you should be reminded of it. You're familiar with it when you experience the discord in your own family. It's there. That's what life is like right now. Peace is not the norm. Tragedy is. But take heart. But take heart. In Christ, God has made for peace. He's done a stunning work. God has already made 
God is continually making and He has promised to one day fully and finally make for total peace. He's closing the gaps one by one by one. And He started with the biggest one between Himself and us. In Christ, we have peace with God. When this glorious gospel came to you and your eyes were open and you saw it and by faith embraced it and believed, you were forgiven. When you genuinely trusted in Christ's cross alone to pay for your sin, you were rendered no longer an enemy and an alien, but you were brought into the family, adopted in as a child of His, built into the one new man in Christ, built into the one household of God come in by faith as his chosen and precious portion, his lot. He used to call you enemy and now he calls you friend. The gap's been closed. He calls you friend, child, son, daughter, heir, glory. That's good news. Peace with God has come. And as you were brought near to God, think of two sides of a triangle. As you were brought near to God and other people were brought near to God, the two sides get closer. In the cross, He has also begun to close the gap between us and other people. He's torn down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and between every other group in the body. We're experiencing peace and we experience more and more and more peace as we continually learn to live in love and in unity with the brothers and sisters in the body. It has come peace with other people and it's being continually made more and more real. He's begun to close that gap as well. But what are the gap between us and the natural order? God in Christ has also addressed that. Currently, we sit with Christ in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. The text is clear. Chapters 1 and 2. We still have to fight against those spiritual powers, but their dominion over us has ceased. And the promise is that one day, even that struggle itself will be gone as well as the struggle against all of the rest of the fallen natural order. The struggle against disease and weakness and famine and earthquake and on and on. God has planned at the fullness of time to finally fully bring all of the creation to heal under Christ's authority. It is coming. The time is real things in heaven and things on earth fallen spirits, fallen nature, all of it. Be a glorious day. He has made much peace already, but the day is coming when He will wipe away every tear. And there will be no more crying, and no more sorrow, and no more pain, or disease, or death, or loss. All the gaps will have been finally closed and peace will far and wide cover the new heaven and the new earth everywhere. We may disagree about a few of the details about how and when that happens, but we all agree that it is going to happen because Ephesians tells us so. Vast peace has come and it is coming. I had an interesting experience on the day we brought 
our first child home from the hospital. As a surprise gift to us, Heidi's parents had rented a limousine to meet us at the hospital and take us home. So we came out, saw the great big limousine there in the driveway where we're in the hospital driveway, we're surprised by it, and then of course we looked inside and ooed and odd, and then we began to load in our precious little bitty brand new baby girl, all healthy and young and everything. That's right here. And right over there in the same driveway, there were two other men loading a vehicle. But they weren't loading a limousine, they were loading an ambulance. And they weren't putting into it a precious, healthy, little bitty baby girl. But they were loading in a very weak, very elderly woman, connected to lots of different machines, all alone. The juxtaposition of those two images, the setting of those two images side by side for comparison and contrast struck me. Here she is. She's precious and new and healthy and young. She's here. She's not over here. But the distance between here and there is not very large. She's actually already walking that path. She's just born. One day she'll be there. I'll be dead by then, long gone. So will everybody else in this picture, and she'll be there all alone. All the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are walking that path. All of us. It's not that far. We should look at the world and listen to the sirens and watch the crime reports and we should realize that something is drastically wrong here. Something is drastically sorrowful here. Ever since Adam and Eve bowed down to Satan's hand, we have dealt with this problem. And now so is Christ. And you need to see that right now. Whether you're currently riding in ambulances or riding in limousines or you're somewhere in between, you need to see that right now so that you can look at the ambulance coming and you can say, I have hope nonetheless. I am sorrowing here, Lord, but ever rejoicing because you have gladdened my heart with Christ and you have promised me in chapter 1, verse 10, that a day is coming in the fullness of time when you determine to fix it all. The curse will be no more. You are on the march and you have closed some of these gaps and I therefore can have faith that you will close the final one, finally. The day is coming for that, and you need to see that right now. Because the ambulance is coming for you, you realize that. It does for all of us. You find hope in that by looking at this. Saying, I have Christ given to me, food for my soul, sustenance amidst trial. It's the seven, second overarching point. In Christ, we have peace. Last point is taken primarily from chapters 4 to 6. The main emphasis fell on how we are to live. Given the gospel 
and the God of chapters 1 to 3. How should we walk? How should we conduct ourselves? That's Paul's main endeavor in these last chapters to answer the question of what should I do? That's what he teaches, and so I'm going to give a brief overview of that. But where I'm going to end up here in a minute is on this third point. We are to be sanctified in Christ. We are to be sanctified in Christ. You recall that at 4-1, the book took a major turn and began to talk about this worthy walking, how we are to walk given what's come already. The first thing we saw is that we saved ones have been gathered together into one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. A radical unity has been attained in the body at the cross. There's that, that peace again between people. What's fitting for us now is to walk in unity, humble and gentle, constantly aware of our own sin, which is infinite upon infinite. So we look at our own sin, then better equipped to deal with others' sin when they sin against us, to deal with them in patience and in love and in kindness. We must be eager to visibly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we saw that in addition to the walk of unity, we are to walk in holiness, not like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Chapter 4, verse 17. It's not that the fallen human mind doesn't work. It, it works marvelously. It's that it doesn't work for this most critical thing, comprehending and understanding and embracing God in Christ. The mind is the key to unworthy walking as well as worthy walking. And so we must tend to our minds if we're going to hope to put off anger and put off deceit and theft and all other manners of unrighteousness. And we came to chapter 5, the call to walk in love, not in lust. The general discussion about love quickly turned to addressing sexual immorality. And the warning there was stay away from that. That path leads to death. Do not walk it. Instead, walk another path of other-centered love. And while you're walking that path, walk as light illumining the lives of those around you, burn brightly like a torch in the darkness, hoping and praying along the way that light will affect your friends and neighbors around you, that they themselves may become light. It's possible, after all. It happened to you. And then finally, all of that, as if in a funnel, all of that worthy walking kind of settled down to or focused on, boiled down to the walk of wisdom. Middle of chapter 5. The life lived in proper relationship to God in time and eternity. The life powered by the Holy Spirit living and working in you. And then that led to the three common human authority relationships to spiritual warfare in the end of the book. We've covered those more recently, so I'll skip over them. That's what the book taught. And again, I realize that I haven't gotten into anywhere near enough depth on that to prove anything. It's not my point. My hope in reviewing this, that something might trigger in your mind. You might be reminded of some prior conviction to address a certain sin or to focus on changing your, your affections or your behavior in a certain way. Something might kind of pop up and remind you there. Perhaps you need to look at that sheet about the humble life, sheet I handed out that's posted on the side of your refrigerator, to look at that sheet again. 
Or, or maybe you need to remember that anger is idolatry. Or to be renewed in your struggle against sexual immorality. Whatever it is, if the Lord just speaks to you a little bit right there about something, heed that. Respond to Him. Obey Him. But the third overarching point I'm working on here is that we are to be sanctified in Christ. Sanctification is necessary in our lives. Spiritual growth in all of those areas that I just touched on, it must happen. But Paul does not mean for us to read chapters 4, 5, and 6 and then say, with clear resignation in our voices, Oh brother, there are a lot of commands there. A lot of stuff I have to do. I better get cracking. I better just suck it up and do it. No. No. That is what must come out of us, but that is not how it happens. If you try that, it'll dishonor God and it won't work. Paul has another method in mind. This method of sanctification is implied in how he structured the whole book itself. And it's made explicit in what he's taught several times. <clears throat> our sanctification happens not in our own power apart from Christ, but in Christ. Our sanctification happens in Christ, by His power, given through the Holy Spirit, living and working in us. You remember talking about the Word of Christ being made to dwell richly down inside of us, to renew us on the inside and make us Christ's home. He taught that, and structurally we saw that he loaded up our minds through three chapters. He loaded up our minds by the truth about how we've been placed in Christ by sovereign grace and about how he has brought to us peace. He told us all of that before he got around to saying word one about what we are to do. His goal is to wash us to flood us, to fill our minds with Christ and to overload us with the vision of all of the vast spiritual blessings that He has given us. Spiritual transformation, sanctification, spiritual transformation happens in us supernaturally as we behold the glory and the majesty of the face of God in Christ. As Paul taught in Romans 12 too, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. The mind is the key to worthy walking. God means for this truth about the gospel and all that he's done on our behalf to affect us, to change us. He means for it to be reflected on and meditated on and internalized so that it grabs hold of our affections and then it drives our behavior. It is not, it's not simply distraction, like what you might do with a very young child. And the child's doing something you don't want them to do. You, you ring a bell over here, hold up something else, and they forget about it and look over here. That would be simply distraction. It's not just that. It's partially that. The gospel has given us Christ. It's given us something else to look at, and to be enthralled by. And we, our attention is drawn over here and we see Him and we are changed so that when we turn around and we look square at the sinful temptation again, we look square at it and we say, no thank you, I have something far better. My heart has been changed. You're offering me something, I don't have an appetite for that anymore, frankly I'm full. I've eaten. A lot. And it was marvelous talked about this a bunch of times. 
It's the overarching point here. We're sanctified in and through Christ. Not by just sucking it up and doing it. He must capture your mind and your heart. You must have a soul that is gladdened by Him. So you resist temptations wherever else they may lie. And so at the end, chapter 6, verse 23, Peace be to you, brothers and sisters. Christ has made peace for you. Between you and God, between you and other people gathered here, and He is making peace one day in the future, everywhere. In love, He has done this for you. His chosen, precious portion, His lot. He loved you uniquely, and He gave Himself for you. Rest in Him. Trust Him and love Him continually, day after day that you might continually, day after day, experience the sustaining grace of God. We're now going to move into the time of reflection before communion. I want to just leave that for you to ponder and to think about. Thumb back through the scriptures. Look at the things that we've just talked about. Reflect on grace giving you peace because of God's love for you. Confess where you find that your heart's cold towards Him and it's gladdened by other things. And ask Him to do a work in you. Stir you for Him. Do that now. A few minutes of reflection, then I'll close in prayer and move directly into the communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.